welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast, where, as if we didn't have enough to chat about with everything that was going on on track on the Indian- Indianapolis road course weekend, we had another instalment of the Alex Polo saga to keep us interested off track as well. So welcome along to the show. We'll try and round out what we'll uh, get into on the show this week. We'll obviously look at Scott Dixon's brilliant uh, lap one crash to victory performance over the course of the uh, of the race there. We'll definitely get into that. We'll also look at Joseph Newgarden also being involved in that crash and that effectively ending his uh, title fight, although we'll get JR's thoughts on if he thinks he's still in it or not, as we like to do that quite regularly. We'll also talk about Graham Rahal ending a, a six-year spell of uh, no poles with uh, a delivery of a lovely qualifying lap. He got very close in mid-Ohio. I think he was, well, he was well under a tenth off pole in mid-Ohio earlier this year and uh, made good on that pole with a, a bit of a surprise performance, I guess. We know how good Ray Hall can be on the Indian, Indianapolis road course, but it's not always Graham you expect to be the one popping it on pole with Christian Lungard, uh, previously the kind of guy to watch there. So we'll get into that. And of course, we'll outline everything surrounding the Alex Plow situation, what we know, what we uh, what we think about the whole thing and what we think is probably going to happen next. So hello, JR Hildebrand at first. Uh, how are you doing? Are you well? Yeah, good, man. JR's alongside to break down all of the action from the weekend. We should start with Scott Dixon, who, as I mentioned, was caught up in that lap one crash, which was, uh, I guess, kind of triggered by Alex Pillow's optimistic move on Marcus Armstrong, which kind of made a bit of a... A chain reaction at turn seven, and although that is a wide corner, when you're when you've already got cars three or four wide going into the corner, uh, it can get narrow pretty quick when you've got cars flying all over the place. Uh, Joseph Newgarden was one of the guys caught up. He hit um, one of the the stationary cars there. Roman Grosjean did the same thing as well. He was also caught up, um, and yeah, Dixon was involved. But one of the things that we've seen happen at this race multiple times before is people pitting inside the first kind of ten laps and trying to turn it into a. a either like a long final stint or um, hoping that caution is going to give them the the time back that they lose and the the pit stop's going to help with fuel or tyres or or whatever. So we saw Dixon pit on lap five. Um, he went really long in his first two stints after that. And then the last stint was really long for him um, as others around him kind of pitted and he cycled to the front. JR, we saw uh, multiple people have a go at this strategy in the race. Um, for for various different reasons, we saw people fail on it. I thought Roman Grosjean was going to be the one who we should maybe watch uh, because he pitted like basically right with Dixon on on that lap five, and we've seen how good Roman's been at Indy before. But I guess we kind of got a reflection of um, a little bit of what it's like to cover Ganassi and Andretti this season in that exchange because uh, Ganassi gave Dixon a perfect pit stop and he uh, emerged out with a chance to to move forward and Roman's left rear wouldn't go on properly. Um, yeah, really struggled, fell back and w- was way out of contention for the rest of the race. And, and that one pit stop could have changed the the whole race for, for Roman. He could have been in the top five or, or the top 10 as well and, and obviously wasn't. But I, I guess getting back to Dixon, the point I want to make with this is we, we've talked about this at length, usually when we talk about Alex Pelot through the course of this season. We've spoken a lot, haven't we, about how alternate strategies don't work unless the driver is able to match that with pace. And it sounds like a very obvious thing to say out loud, but I think people sometimes give too much kind of too much praise or put too much emphasis on a strategy when it's actually the driver obviously delivering the pace to match that strategy that really puts them in, in victory lane. But I guess in this occasion, it's slightly different with Dixon because it's not necessarily just the pace that that did it for Scott. It's the, it's the tire management and the fuel saving that we've seen 
him have. Um, we've seen him do this many times before. I don't feel like we've seen it particularly. Um, well, he's not won a race this season, so we haven't seen it happen this year for for sure. But um, yeah, a nice reminder of what he's capable of. Um, it definitely feels like Honda have um, either made a step at some point through the season or have have been particularly strong in general on fuel saving this year. But even so, we saw other Honda powered guys um, trying this strategy and not really being able to to make it work. So uh, I wanted to get your kind of insight from a driver's perspective of obviously Dixon's got three very strong teammates who can look at his data over a course of a race. So there'll be things they can pick up from that in terms of fuel saving and, and tire management, I, I imagine. Um, and and I, I guess there's a certain amount of data knocking around for for all the, the teams and drivers and the actual art of fuel saving seems to be in some ways relatively straightforward. Like there's not a million things that you can do to get an advantage on, on other drivers. So may, maybe from a, a driver appreciation point of view, you know, how difficult is it to do what Dixon does where he has these races where he's able to save so much fuel and, and tires compared to everybody else sometimes? Yeah. I, I mean, I think first, first I would just echo some of your thoughts, you know, in, in the lead up here, which are basically, I, I think to have this situation, like if you had, if you had spin in the first, you know, five laps, go to the back pit and, and if you had those on your, on your bingo card, <laughs> you, need, you needed Scott Dixon and Ganassi and Honda to hit bingo at this event. Basically. Like, I think that, I think that that's for various reasons, but I think that that's kind of, cause you, you saw that, like you saw other drivers, you saw other teams, you saw, I mean, I, I think that to your point, we've we've kind of heard some behind the scenes about Honda making what has been perceived in the paddock to be maybe coming into the season feeling like Honda was better off on on fuel economy just to start with, basically. But then, um, you know, widening that gap over the course of the season, we've seen Chevrolet produce some performance that maybe they didn't have. So sometimes those things just, you know, you focus on one thing and not the other and, and you can't, you know, you can't get both basically. So, uh, that, that may be the case. Um, but it just struck me that you really didn't see anybody on the Chevy side, even try this. Uh, and you, and I think, you know, reading between the lines, like Pato's interview at the end, uh, after post-race he's him basically saying just, we, we quote unquote <laughs> couldn't have done what Dixon did. Basically. I don't, I don't think that he was, I think that was kind of a veiled, like we just can't get that fuel fuel mileage basically. Like it's, it's not a, it's not like we can't make the tires last or whatever. Um, and so like part of it is just, can you get to the end of the race and not be, I think Scott would have been given where they were at. I was sort of watching through the second stint of that race or, or his, I guess, second stint, everybody else's basically third stint going into the finals, going into final pit stops, just thinking, I don't know, like there's enough of a, there, the, the top five cars on the traditional strategy were spread out enough that you sort of felt like, okay, well, Scott's going to end up in the top five here and they're going to be stoked for that. As long as he makes it to the end of the race and they're not going to, they're not, they're not, spacing this out such that he's going to have uh, a more dramatic fuel number to hit in the, in the third, you know, in his third stint, basically after his final pit stop. Um, and so I, I think to, to 
your point, to actually answer your question, to talk about like, what does it take to actually end up winning this race? Like to do all the things that he did to basically be on the back foot, to be pulling, to be trying to pull off a strategy that nobody else has managed to do. And that clearly a bunch of people just completely ruled out, you know, like that, that was not, this was not on the radar of a lot of people because they just didn't feel like they could do it in the first place. Um, This is, this starts to get into what Scott Dixon really is exceptionally good at. And, and it's, and it's not just fuel saving. It's it's basically driving the car in the most efficient possible way, given given it kind of being imperfect or you being in an imperfect situation. And I would say I think I think there's part of that ability and that skill set and the feeling that he's able to work with from the car in these kind of situations that is not entirely different from the reason that he's been on pole at Indianapolis so many more times than everybody else. It's just because he's kind of able to, he's able to, with his inputs into the steering wheel in particular, but brake pedal, you know, obviously at Indy, you're not using the brakes, but you know, just his steering inputs, basically, if we just talked about that, his ability to really, it's not like maximizing what the car is going to give you without going over. It's almost like kind of preemptively being able, he just has a smoothness about the way that he does these things that it's really deliberate. And so he's not, he's not like, he's kind of, he, he makes a deliberate input. Yes. He's reacting to what the car is doing, but he's not, he, I think of all of the things that we see, like in contrast to say Pato award, who we know is ultra fast, ultra quick hands, like very, if there's a problem, he's, he's your guy to be able to fix it. Like if you, if there's somebody, if, if somebody's out there and they got to just like hang on to the thing by sawing at the wheel, like Pato's your guy. But Scott manages maybe to drive the same car just without having to have it right on the ragged edge. Like he just has this kind of sixth sense, I think, for the car being loose, the car not really being perfect, not doing what he wants it to do, and being able to operate like a tight, a fraction of a percent, like under the limit of the car to be able to get all the way to the end, to be able to get to the end of lap four in a qualifying run. Um, to be able to get to the end of these stints without just completely burning the thing up. And so that's actually, to me, when I watch these kinds of situations, that's really what stands out the most. Um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely recall thinking, you know, I, I remember a barber race and it must've been five or six years ago, Scott didn't win the race. Cause I think he still hasn't won a race at barber. He's finished second. Like, isn't that one of the tracks that he's finished second at like, you know, <laughs> eight times or something. Um, yeah, you know, watching his onboard in a fuel safe situation in the middle of the race, clearly the tires, the rear tires are just completely smoked. Like the car, the car was set up loose to start with and the rears have burned off. And it's like, if you just watch his steering inputs, you wouldn't really be sure exactly which direction the track is going one way or the other. Cause or or even when a corner is coming around because he's just like, he's never got more than 10 degrees of steering in the thing. Um, you just kind of have, you, you almost have to try to put yourself in that position and think, okay, it's that on the edge. This guy just with the, 
with the sort of finesse of his of his hands and not ever making really sharp inputs with the break and throttle. He's just blending those three inputs together everywhere so seamlessly that a car that somebody else would have crashed in long ago, he's still managing to like hang in there in second and stick the thing on the podium. And so the the fuel save part of it, to your point, the, the, the kind of macro strategies to saving fuel are pretty basic. Like you lifting coast at the end of the straightaway, um, at Indianapolis, it's a place where you can definitely save a fair amount of fuel because there's three real heavy braking zones. There's also, I would say, like going into turn four is just kind of another another spot going into, I guess it's 13 that before you come onto the front straightaway, the the left where pit, pit, pit entry is. Those are four and 13 are both additional braking zones that maybe you could almost get away with just like a long lift instead of breaking into those corners. And because you're, because you're not, especially once you get halfway through a stint by doing that, if the car is set up such that it's free enough, basically that you don't need to transfer all that weight onto the nose of the car to get it to turn, uh, which we know Scott Dixon tends to drive a car that at least can be kind of migrated into that window, probably with the, with the cockpit tools. Those are both places where whether, I mean, you're probably not completely deleting a braking zone, but you can break a lot lighter, use those places as another lifting coast while still maintaining kind of tire energy, cornering energy. You're not losing a ton of, a ton of lap time, basically, once you're partway into a stint to be able to, um, you know, get a little bit more fuel safe going. So I, I say all of that just to say there's a lot of places at this track in particular that you know, you might not be losing a lot of time to be saving a little bit of fuel in a bunch of spots, but it's what it really comes down to is to maximize that, to do what Scott does. It's, it's a lot more of the first thing that I was talking about, which is, okay, everybody can lift and coast extracting the lap time that's in it while you're lifting and coasting has much more to do with just that transition between all of your different inputs and still being able to get everything out of it and being able to make the car last not only on fuel but tires to the end of these stints and so that's why i think it's kind of this you you maybe had to have this perfect combination of these parts this driver that team to you know to your point about grosjean to not screw up a pit stop to to commit clearly to this strategy without yellows from the very beginning that's a that's kind of a ballsy call to make right away is i mean in some ways it's not in some ways it's like the only call to make but much easier to say all right we're we're gonna like kind of be somewhere in between here and assume that we'll get some yellows um which which clearly some other people kind of were were more on that on that front with the whole thing just to do all of those things and actually end up winning this race uh is (laughs) is really incredible and and it's it's kind of one of those, it's one of those weird things with Scott that I think the re part of the reason why he has, why he's earned so much respect or while he just possesses so much respect from all of the other drivers that he's competed against for 20 years and, you know, the teams and the engineers and the mechanics. I mean, everybody that's inside the paddock that's raced against Scott Dixon is because 
you just realize that for better or worse for him on a larger scale in terms of recognition of Scott Dixon's, you know, skill and greatness at large, um, the things that he really does so exceptionally well are, are he's kind of like a silent killer with them, you know, like they're just these things that kind of go under the radar to the average person, go under the radar to the, to the casual fan. But when you're in it and you're doing it at the same time as you're trying to do the same thing that he's doing at the same time, that's really what, you know, makes you realize how incredible he is. So, uh, I, I was, I was excited for him. I was glad that, um, you know, as I've said before on the pod, I, I guess I just think that for that reason, I'm always excited to see Scott Dixon get celebrated or have a have an opportunity to get celebrated because because he's you know I I think so much of what makes him as incredible as he is is just not as obvious as it is for other people. Basically, it was it was amazing to me, shocking in in some ways because I guess we've seen that kind of performance from Scott on so many occasions, but it's usually like. He's coming from, you know, a poor qualifying and he manages to finish like fifth or sixth or seventh or something, you know, like he's, he's making lemonade out of lemons, right? Like he's had a long day and he's, he's pulled off a strategy like that, but it never, or, or not never, but it rarely feels like he's going to win from that scenario. Um, especially when it's like only him who's like really trying to make it work. And he's like the kind of one-off in the scenario. Like I, I remember Portland with Polo a few years back when they all went off at the first corner and there was like seven or eight guys on that strategy and you're like there's a reason why these guys have committed to this like they really think they can make it work i was going to bring up portland as kind of a, a race that this reminded me of a little bit but but yeah. with a much harder fuel save to have to hit basically yeah yeah and and the i guess the shocking aspect of it for me was that graham just looks so good on the hard tire and i don't know if you had the same kind of feeling as me but i, I, I we know that race control have moved towards this kind of strategy of not just just not like pulling a caution immediately after an incident. They've kind of tried to wait for people who haven't pitted to give them a chance to get into the pits before they call the caution. And I just thought that played really nicely into Graham's hands because he would he knew he could stretch a stint and not have to worry so much about being blasted by a like an indie road course caution that we've seen in the past that totally takes people out of in fact it's taken him out of the potential of winning a race before in I think 2020 or 2021. Uh, but with that kind of out of the window and and kind of knowing how race control are going to police that and, and let everyone pit before calling a caution, I just felt like all of the kind of cards were in Graham's hands, especially when we saw how quick he was on the hard tire compared to pretty much everybody else. And that just that that just seemed like everything was kind of falling in in his favor. And then suddenly, you know, a combination of all these things that we've talked about for Dixon, but also just how long he was able to stretch the stints and keep the pace up to the to the level that he was was the reason why. He, obviously had that gap to play with once he came out after his after his last stop and he was able to I guess hold Graham off it was just a it was just shocking in in the sense that I, I guess you kind of expect this level of performance from Dixon but it just looked like all of the cards were stacked against him and this was going to be a brilliant comeback drive to like seventh or something that we've seen him do so many times yeah I think that I it, it I found myself thinking once we got into the final stint of the race that I was kind of like I wonder if the Ray Hall guys just didn't even factor in Dixon as like a genuine, a genuine threat for the win. Like it may, it may, it makes me wonder if post-race, if they were kicking themselves at all and, and maybe not, the answer to this might be no, 
that they that they didn't really have through through call it the previous stint in particular where where you would have at least recognized like okay we're we're in for some degree of convergence here like dixon is a factor if nothing else um like you'd have you'd have had a whole stint worth of his data and pace to kind of start to play with a little bit in the, in the, you know, bigger scheme of where everybody's at. Um, but it's, it did, it seemed in a way so easy for Graham to do what he was doing for a long period in the race. It makes you wonder, like, I wonder <laughs> if he had, I mean, all he needed was a couple of seconds worth of lap time over the course of like two stints, basically to have changed the outcome of this race. Um, I, I found myself feeling a little bit bad that, that that was even that that they'd even be thinking that basically, you know, like, oh man, that's just that would really be a bummer to be, you know, sitting in that spot and and thinking, oh man, like yeah, we kind of took our foot off the gas because we were we thought we were just racing the guys behind us. So not not a bummer, but a bummer, as Graham Ray Hall put it himself. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> All right, just quickly before we get to Graham and I guess we'll mention his his teammate Christian Lungard as well briefly. Um Joseph Newgarden, JR, basically a a nightmare weekend from from start to finish for for him, especially in the race where, yeah, he was taken out in that early incident and without any cautions, he just wasn't able to get that lap back or produce any sort of comeback strategy like Dixon was able to, um, unfortunately. Um, this leaves him, I think he's 108 points out now with uh, three races to go. So, um, yeah, it looks pretty uphill. Obviously, Scott Dixon's win takes him past Joseph in the points. Um, we know that Polo can win the championship with two tenths and a ninth over the last three races. Um, there's multiple ways he can wrap up the championship, both in Gateway and Portland. Um, I think that'll be the first time since uh, 2005 that the championship's not gone to the last round. I think Weldon, um, unless it's happened since then and escaped me, but I'm pretty sure that's right. So that would be, uh, yeah, that would be a shame. I think at this point, kind of like hoping that Dixon finishes second so that Newgarden doesn't have another year finishing second because I just don't <laughs> think he deserves that. Even if third is worse than second, it feels like at this point it's better than better than finishing second judging by the, the last three years. What do you see in terms of, I guess I wanted to ask you this in the context of we know he's going to be, or we think he's going to be strong at Gateway because you know he won the last race there. He's won um, a million oval races in a row, it feels like, and that's a place where he should be able to turn up and and have a strong race. But for me, it just feels like even if he wins that race, uh, I just don't really see his way back into it. Now I think he's too far out. No, I think, I think just given the races that are on the schedule in particular, also like gateway is a, any oval race, obviously as, we, as we've seen, but I, I think for other reasons than just performance, like they are, they're definitely places that are easier to just have a race ending incident of some kind. It feels like than. Um, and, and that, that not having to be something that is totally out of your control as an otherwise very competitive driver. Right. And so I think that's, that's really how I look at some of those races, just in terms of what are the odds of something weird happening or, or something, you know, really devastating in terms of your finishing position. Like the ovals are all, they're all just places. Every oval that we go to now is a place that even top drivers in the series could just have a single car accident all by themselves that takes them out of the race. Um, that's the, I feel like the likelihood of that happening on any of the ovals in the IndyCar schedule is higher than it is that it happens at basically any of the other places. So for that reason, gateway could, could be a place where you have 
a much more varied set of results. But I think the gap, the gap at this point, this is obviously not, uh, you know, rocket science here. Like the gap at this point is just great enough that that probably doesn't matter. And then we're going to Portland and Laguna, which are both places that Polo has been great at. So you're really depending on Alex to have just all, I mean, he's basically got to not finish all three of these races for anybody to genuinely be in, in contention again. And that while Scott or Joseph, like if that happened, Scott or Joseph could both be top five guys at all three of those places. Neither of them, frankly, strike me as the, the obvious candidate to go dominate all three of them, like to, to go on a run and win the last three events of the year. And so I, I just think, I mean, I've sort of been thinking that this is over for a little while now, but now it's just, I think just the math of it doesn't really make any sense. I think it's it's more likely that Alex locks this thing up before the before they get to Laguna um, than it is that anybody else, you know, then Scott or Joseph basically um, are still in it. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a weird weekend for Joseph and the Penske guys just kind of in general almost seems like they were kind of admittedly just off and didn't and and maybe don't a hundred percent know why at this particular track they've had a hard time. This is the place where you see the the three of the cars kind of the most all over the place. It seems like like there's not a lot of consistency between Power and Joseph and McLaughlin in terms of their performance at at IMS on the road course. You know, part of that is like you know a tenth is eight spots or something in qualifying around here. It's just kind of a short lap. It's a relatively straightforward track. So if you're a tiny bit off, it just, it's really magnified in terms of what the results are. But I mean, obviously for him, a weekend to forget, and I'm kind of with you, like if we're going to say he's not in the championship hunt at the end of the race, like less or at the end of the year, let's just say for the sake of argument, that doesn't happen. Maybe you'd rather get crashed out at gateway or somewhere else so that at least you could kind of be like, that's <laughs> yeah, not my fault. Like, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. You know? No, that weekend, that weekend wasn't meant to be with the, I guess they brought a new setup package that didn't really work. They had the, Joseph was late to the weigh-in, so he had some lost time in practice. The qualifying performance was poor and he was one of the many Ganassian um, Penske cars that just struggled in qualifying and then obviously changed the engine before the race as well. So just basically everything that could possibly go wrong in a weekend really kind of went wrong. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, I mean, it, this is, this is a race that has, I feel like more frequently than other races gone, maybe not gone the entire dislike lights, hasn't gone lights to flag green, but you know, has tended to be, you know, a, a good bet for a race on the calendar. Um, you know, that once it kind of sorts itself out at the beginning does go green for long periods of time, basically just because there, there are, I guess I would put it this way. There are not that many places that you can mess up and not be able to recover from it. Kind of like there's a lot of grass. There's a lot of, a lot of places to, to have little errors and, and still got, still keep it going. So yeah, for him, definitely a weekend to forget, uh, for the Penske guys, just generally, I'd say the same. I think it's kind of funny that two tenths and a ninth will seal it for Pelot and his worst finish of the season is eighth. Like, right, yeah. <laughs> we're like, not we're looking like, good all he needs to do is, else, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's like basically the the absolute worst case scenario of him being able to finish like worse than he has at any other point in the season and still win the championship is like pretty worrying. I did enjoy uh, Tony Dezino, a good friend of the show, who actually appeared on the show in the off season last year to talk about uh, some of the some of the road to indie guys. Uh, tweeted that uh, <laughs> that Polo has uh, more contract disputes than finishes outside of the top ten this season, which <laughs> that one t- that one tickled me quite heavily. Actually, I've got to be honest about that one. <laughs> So Jack Graham Graham Rahal back up on the point uh, in qualifying, which I was super impressed by. Obviously Rahal, you know they they managed to replicate what they did earlier in the season, which not everybody can say. So I think that's that probably all by itself was just a huge. I don't know if sigh of relief is the right word, but but you know it gave them a bolstered feeling just from practice one that what they had here and this this is a place so frequently that you can be good at one part of the year and just for no obvious reason, be terrible or, or, or at least off target, basically the other in the other race. So, you know, they clearly kind of had it going from the very beginning. Like you said, it's been six years, uh, basically since he took a poll, he was obviously, we talked about it earlier within reach of a win here, felt like lapped cars kind of played a role in that at the end. I guess I would say, you know, once the two of them were clear at the end of the race and Dixon kind of was back to, they, he obviously was allowed to go back to full rich. That last lap made me feel a little bit better about the lap cars not having played a huge role in the whole thing because it sort of seemed like, okay, once Dixon's actually not saving fuel anymore, they've, you know, he's got kind of the pace and the tires to make this work for however long that was going to exist for but you know what's you've kind of been around the paddock this year or the last couple of years what's your sort of feeling from from your point of view of how graham is sort of looked at as as a veteran indycar driver now i mean he's he's been around the sport for a long time he's had his his own sort of ups and downs some of that has very clearly been uh in line with the ray hall team's ups and downs you know he manages still to Every year, he sort of manages to pull out these types of performances. I mean, obviously, not quite to this exact level, but he's he's been here and he's been in the conversation, um, you know, throughout his kind of entire career. But but maybe less frequently than I think he would have liked. So, you know, I have I guess I have some opinions about about Graham and some thoughts just being around him a little bit more over the last couple of years. But I'm interested in your take on this first. Yeah, I guess the just. Being specific to to this race, I felt like this was a big breakthrough in terms of that we saw the pole in mid Ohio, and we've uh, sorry the second in mid Ohio. He was almost on pole. Um, I think I feel like we've seen since he's not had a pole uh, since 2017. Over that period of time, we've seen him qualify very well. Um, obviously, not score a pole, but we've seen him qualify high up, and then not not usually be able to kind of hold position, or we've seen him fall back in the races and not really been able to to continue to challenge. Uh, I guess there's multiple different reasons for that. And we're talking about lots of different races here as a kind of blanket situation. So, you know, we're not going into too much detail, but um, I guess the fact that he's qualified well and not won a race shows you that he's not managed to, you know, deliver on that. And I, I guess the feeling is that he's a driver who hasn't won or had a pole in that period of time when his teammates have relatively frequently been able to do that, whether that was Takuma winning races in, in the time that he was Graham's teammate or now we're starting to see Christian Lungard come to the fore and really start to to challenge. But I guess my feeling is that he's a extremely underrated driver for what he kind of brings to the table. I think in terms of racecraft, there's not many better out there in terms of him. Um, you very re- rarely see him kind of initiating any sort of like race ending contact or putting himself in positions where 
you think you could have bailed out of that or you could have been the person who, you know, kept that alive. Um, seems to be the kind of person who, if he does get taken out, it's like a he's wiped out by something as opposed to like putting himself in a bad position or anything that he's done wrong. I think he's earned the respect of the drivers around him. Um, Christian Lungard disagreed with me actually to a certain extent when I kind of asked if he felt that Graham was underrated and he felt that the other drivers just all think Graham's very good and that he's not underrated. Maybe it's more of a a media or a fan thing where Graham maybe doesn't get the credit he deserves. And he did say after his poll that there's a lot of hate out there um, from from different people and, and from different areas about what he's done or his performances or how he goes about things or, or all that kind of stuff. But I just think the IndyCar series would be a much worse, like much worse off without him. Um, I think he's, he's capable of really strong performances in the races. He's not, not consistently been a threat for, for pole or wins for a little while now, but he's shown with this weekend that when the car is in the window, he is still capable of delivering those kind of performances. And also I feel like he doesn't really get the credit for some of the other things that he does around the series either in terms of like, you look at the, obviously the fact that he's always tarnished with this kind of, you know, you drive for your dad's team situation, which he's talked about a million times, not just, not just the media or, or me, but I, I found myself kind of sat there listening to him talk in the press conference after the poll and like looking at his overalls and thinking like at least two or three of the brands that are written on your overalls there that kind of mean that you're allowed to race this weekend, are like relationships that you fostered or, you know, brands you've gone out there and initiated the conversation with or, or brought those sponsors into the team or, or is one of the reasons why that brand continues to return. And you look at the Ray Hall car, there's so many sponsors on it. You can barely see like, I feel like they're one step away from like the Fig Newtons on the aero screen <laughs> at this point. Like there's so many there's so many sponsors on the car. Um, and I guess that's another area that Graham doesn't really maybe get the credit for is, um, you know, he's done a lot of work behind the scenes, whether that's on his own business, seeing how successful he's become as a businessman himself, or whether that's the the kind of the business aspect of Ray Hall and how much he's helped that team uh, from, from that perspective. I just think there's a lot of, there's a lot of things he brings to the table that, that, that don't really get the credit that, that they deserve, I think. And there's a, there's a lot of things that make me think that he, is a very underrated race driver because he's not going to be someone who I'm going out there in silly season and thinking, right, I'm going to sign this guy and he's going to win two or three races a year and challenge for the championship for me. But is he a guy, I think if I put him in like a, a Ganassi Andretti McLaren car now would be a regular, like top eight threat and would take points off all the other teams, you know, most weeks I would, I would say, yes, that would be my opinion that he would be that guy who would be able to do that and would bring that level of consistency. And, you know, he has driven for some of those teams in the past and not delivered the, the kind of performances that people have expected of him. But I think the the level he's reached now, I think things might be a bit different, but um, I guess we maybe won't see that chance to look set that he's going to stay at the team for, for next season and probably for the long term. It makes a lot of sense. You know, not only is it the the family team in that sense, but those brands that I mentioned, you know, quite a few of them have long-term relationships or, or would very much not like to see Graham leave the team. So there's lots of different aspects and mechanisms to that, but um yeah, I, I I thought this weekend was really fr- refreshing from the point of view that he managed to stick with that kind of, he delivered the pole and then fought for the race win. And genuinely, I don't think there was a lot he could have done differently that would have won him that race. Um, I just think it was a really unfortunate scenario that Scott Dixon was the one guy who was the kind of the one who pitted on lap five. And he's like the one person in the whole field who can make that that strategy work as we've kind of talked about. Yeah, I agree. I think those are all really good points. You know, I, I do think that Graham is, Graham's probably the guy that takes over this team from Bobby and, you know, ends up continuing on sort of, you know, call it a legacy or whatever, but just carries on that business. And you can already, you can tell how embedded he is in this, 
in this organization on, on so many levels. So regardless of, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I think you have to separate who is Graham Ray Hall for the series and this team and why are those things the way that they are and what is he as a driver when you want to kind of have these, have these conversations. And I know that, I know that that's what you were doing as well, but um, you know, sometimes I guess I, I, for our, for the sake of the discussion in front of our uh, listeners here, like, you know, we recognize that, right? Like when we're talking about Graham Ray Hall, you know, we realize that, you know, the, the fact that he is, uh, has taken the initiative in a way that many other drivers don't with this team is still secondary to the fact that to his results and his performances and, and all that kind of stuff. I think, you know, you see the, I think trying to be as, as kind of objective as possible, looking at Graham's, we'll just say sort of recent history or his recent career in the IndyCar series, really since he's been driving for Ray Hall Letterman, to your point, he's the the peaks of that team's results have often been coming from somebody else. But every time that Taku was fast, Graham was right there. Every time that Christian's been fast, Graham is right there. He's usually not the slowest guy on the team. Um, so he he sort of and and that I think that Graham is a driver, I, I believe, and I don't know this is, you know, don't hold me to this, I guess, but that he strikes me as a driver that maybe a little bit like we've sort of you hear about guys like Simon Pagano and uh, you know whatever that that they to be really exceptional kind of it all has to really click together like they they really need to have exactly what they're looking for to be able to go and do that when they have that they're as good as anybody but maybe not quite as you know we've talked about this even just between Graham and Christian a little bit over the last maybe 12 or 18 months between the two of those guys, basically just that it seems like Christian at times over the last year, like since the second half of last year has been able to extract a little bit more out of a car. That's kind of not doing what any of them really want it to do. Right. So if there's anything to point to and say, there's still room for Graham to get better or produce, you know, more consistently better results. I think it's that, but but exactly to your point, he's it's not like when the thing isn't great that he's just DFL and his teammates are managing still to extract a lot more than he is out of it. Um, and I guess I think for for all of the things that he brings to the table at this point, which, which at this point includes just a wealth of experience in the series, um, he he is kind of one of these guys that you know, I imagine if you had an open seat, if you have open seats somewhere, he's in that conversation basically just for that reason. Like you can plug this guy in and he's kind of a known commodity that is going to be able to going to be able to get almost whatever anybody else is going to get out of the car. If not be able to stick you up in the top five when, when things are right. Um, and to your point, like it's, it maybe his results and his, sort of existence in the series has not been flashy and spectacular over the last, you know, for, for over the last call it six years here, basically. I mean, this period of time between his polls that we're talking about. Um, but I, I would tend to agree with you that I think there's, there's actually not that many guys. It's certainly not like guys that aren't in those aren't in a full-time seat that you're sitting there thinking like, Oh, he's, he's using that up when somebody else deserves it. So I think, you know, Graham cares a lot about all of this stuff. It's, 
it's interesting just to see, you know, his progress, progress is the wrong word, just the the sort of evolution of his attitude away from the car. You know, I mean, you can see that certainly part of that is part of that is related to him taking on more of a role within the team. And so you kind of sense the responsibility that he feels to his team and his and the, his team sponsors and and all of those things. But, you know, it also just sort of feels like he's becoming one of these like not so old elder statesmen within the series as, as far as drivers go. And, and so I was, I'm, I'm happy for him to be able to come out, take a swing here, basically to be able to show that, okay, whatever is going on, regardless of how perfect it needs to be or something for him to be the fastest guy on track again, like he's still capable of doing that. And, uh, and to your point to get through the race in essence, like with, you know, kind of a, a finger or two tied behind his back because of the tire issue that they talked to, just not having another set of good alternates because he flat spotted him or, or whatever in qualifying. To have the pace that he did, I mean, I felt like at the start of the race, you got the sense that Christian really thought that he was going to be able, he was going to be the guy to give Graham a run for his money, that you, you sort of almost had the feeling that in Christian's mind, he was just waiting for his chance to pounce. Obviously, the, they had sort of they had a long a long pit stop in the first go around and that that really was the thing ultimately it felt like that kind of took him or it certainly knocked him back you know half a step um, in terms of being able to take the fight to Graham but but basically nobody ended up being able to take the fight to Graham so you know, I think that that basically just goes to show that that he definitely still has this form I also just wanted to mention because we t- because I'd mentioned I was the one who brought up Takuma and mentioned him and he is like the the one person I think since 2017 that you can make a realistic argument that has performed like to a higher level than, than Graham. But in those, in all of those years after that, only one year did Takuma outscore Graham in the championship. And that was 2020 when Takuma won the 500, when it was double points. And I mean, Graham was third on in, in that year. So he still scored, you know, a fair amount of points from the 500. It wasn't the only thing that decided that, that kind of switch around, but I think that's a pretty good record against someone like Takuma to, you know, to beat him in the championship every year, apart from one and, the, the one year to not do it was the year he won the 500. And we all know, you know, how Graham feels about 2021. And, he you know, he could have won that 500. That could have been, you know, a big thing for his kind of, his kind of resume as well. Um, I think this year is going to be the first year where he's like quite a significant distance behind a teammate for, for a long time. Um, and, and even so, we've still seen some of the, some of the peaks like we saw this weekend. Um from Graham. So I definitely don't think this is like the beginning of a decline or, or anything like that. I think we've seen the emergence of, uh, probably a future IndyCar champion or at least a regular race winner in Christian Lungard. And that's probably not, not kind of helping a, a difficult Graham Ray Hall year in terms of looking at the points, but uh, I've still been really impressed with, with what I've seen anyway. One person we haven't really spoken about at length yet is Alex Pillow. Are you ready for this, JR? Take a take a deep breath and we're gonna go on a, a magical mystery ride through the podcast Wonderland that is the the Pillow Down, as it is uh, christened. I don't even know where exactly to start this story, but I guess chronologically would be the the exact way forward. I guess in terms of the race, he was quite nondescript, just to get to that before we kind of um, get into the whole contract situation. I feel like he was kind of like, he was there, but not really there. And I feel like that that whole kind of basically fourth, fifth, maybe on backwards from the from the top 10 were kind of guys who you felt like could fall back or move forward and 
it was kind of going to be decided by, you know, kind of towards the end of the race and how they were in the last stint and, and stuff like that. Alex was seventh in the end, a decent result, obviously not his worst result of the season. But almost. Yeah, almost. <laughs> you could suggest that he caused that incident with Marcus Armstrong. I think it'd be reasonable to to put the blame on him for that. And also... You're welcome, Scott Dixon. Yeah. And almost um, almost took himself out of the race, smashing into Devlin DeFragesco at turn 11 um, early on in the race as well, which was, he was lucky to get away with that one as well. So fortunate to be able to uh, bring the car home after after those incidents and, and be in a position to to do what he did. I, I, yeah, I guess we said we would start this uh, chronologically. So if you've been living under a rock and, and don't know what, hap- what has happened on Saturday morning, um, I don't know what time it was in the US, but it was about 1 a.m. in the UK because they kept me up for a significant amount of time. That's <laughs> why so I remember that. But we had um, uh, the Associated Press, Jennifer Fryer broke a story which basically revealed uh, a letter that had allegedly been sent by Zach Brown to the Arrow McLaren um, employees. It said a lot of different things, but the crux of it was and was followed up with a statement which was sent to quite a few different media outlets by uh, McLaren or from McLaren, from from Zach Brown, which basically said, I'm extremely disappointed that Alex Plow does not intend to honour his contractual obligations to race with us in IndyCar in 2024 and beyond. That's all I have to say uh, on the topic for some time. So that was the first public confirmation from anyone that Alex Plow had a written contract with McLaren in any way, shape or form. Obviously, after what happened last year with the whole uh, Plow and uh, McLaren and Ganassi situation, uh, we... We knew that there was a, an exclusivity clause in Alex Plow's contract that lasted until September the 1st, 2023. Um, so none of us expected to hear anything about Polo signing for McLaren. But basically since last year, it's been the worst kept secret in IndyCar that Alex Plow would sign for McLaren. And more recently, the alleged sort of existence of this contract with McLaren has been one of the kind of underpinning reasons for people being able to say that because they know that there's been, you know, some sort of, of deal in place between the two, which Polo has now uh, reportedly um, informed Zach Brown that he won't be driving for McLaren next year. That was then, um, oh, I guess uh, another element of that we should probably outline was as part of the Associated Press's story, uh, part of that letter said that, um, this was Zach Brown talking, said we have paid Polo a significant first payment towards his 2024 season, which I found bizarre, JR. I could not believe that, that Polo's already been paid for a 2020, for, for part of the 2024 season, according to Zach Brown. Um, and also talked about the millions of dollars uh, that they've spent to help develop him via its F1 testing program and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so that was another element to it. Uh, then we got news that Chip Ganassi was releasing his own statement Um I'll give you that in full because it's quite it's quite an interesting statement. I think it's I think it'd be remiss to just kind of refer to this. I think we should read it out. So um, it reads: Anyone that knows me um, knows that I don't make a habit of commenting about contract situations. Sub- subsequently, I have been quiet since day one of this story, but now I feel I must respond. I grew up respecting the McLaren team and their success. The new management does not get my same respect. Alex Plow has been part of our team and under contract since 2021 season. It is the interference of that contract from McLaren that began this process, and ironically, they are now playing the victim. Simply stated, the position of McLaren IndyCar regarding our driver is inaccurate and wrong. He remains under contract with CGR. And shortly after that, uh, Alex Plow's management, Monaco Increase management, which have been looking after him since last season when he made the announcement that he was going to leave for McLaren in the first place. 
um, said that it was disappointed that Alex has decided to break that agreement. And the statement didn't say this explicitly, but um, kind of implies that they're going their separate ways. And that's been confirmed since. So Pelot's lost his management. And uh, I guess all of this points towards him likely staying at Ganassi. So that's the kind of outline, JR. I guess as you saw this unfold, did you kind of have flashbacks to last year and were just kind of feeling like you were not surprised at any of this kind of coming out because of what happened last year? Like, it's just like, like when I saw this hit my inbox and this started to like fire off, obviously we'd heard some stuff in the week before, but weren't really sure about what was what was true and what wasn't. And then this kind of comes into your inbox. And if it's any other driver in the world, apart from maybe Oscar Piastri, you probably think, oh, wow, this is incredible. Um, but but this came in, I was just like, oh, right. So this is the, like the latest installment of this debacle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting to try to unpack the why of, of it being this way. I, I think there's there's basically just too many question marks and to to really even from my perspective at least to really even speculate on that. You know, I think that it's it's seen on the one hand, the idea that he's staying at Ganassi doesn't seem crazy at all. Like we've we've we talked about that from the very beginning of this whole thing, as as did many others, that that seems like that the the path to F1 as a part of the carrot that's being dangled on the McLaren side seems like a an extremely low odds like thing to play out there's there is no there is zero obvious pathway right for where the chips currently sit there is zero pathway for Alex to end up in a race seat in F1 right now it, it so it would appear basically um obviously we know how quickly from the various sort of F1 contracts and and driver movement and whatever like we know how quickly that also can change and being a dominant IndyCar champion has in the past for other drivers Alex Zanardi, Juan Pablo Montoya whatever like this has been a that has been a part of how they've managed to end up getting those opportunities yeah it just seemed it seemed like why would you leave the place that you're currently kicking ass at basically like that's that doesn't seem like there's nothing seem like an obvious answer there um the i mean i guess the the obvious answer was well because you're getting paid a lot more and so i guess we have to just we have to kind of make i i'm i'm willing to at least make some assumptions here in terms of what's gone on which are basically that chip has come around and decided that he's gonna pay alex whatever his market value is here maybe and then some um we talked earlier this year in the context of marcus erickson which is I guess a whole nother kind of, you know, adjacent component to what's, what's happening here that maybe it's, maybe it has to do with it. Maybe it sort of doesn't, but um, you know, we sort of, you got to figure that a part of, I mean, one of my questions with respect to Erickson that we talked about just sort of off air was maybe he, maybe he thinks maybe chip, thinks that Alex is still in the frame and is treating it as such and and knows some knows something that we don't in terms of his ability to actually make that happen and just can't pay both of them basically like that that is definitely one simple explanation for why Polo is still here and why Erickson you know it's we're sort of making the assumption that he's not like that he's going to be somewhere else getting into next year. I don't, I don't know that, but, um, if, if that were to be the case, this could simply be dollars and cents that they need to fill that seat with somebody who's bringing some money to offset Dixon and Pillow, basically like that would not be 
Chip Ganassi racing, unlike Penske or even McLaren or in other parts of the racing universe, you know, you've got Hendrick and, you know, these other businesses, certainly in F1 that are backed by businesses that are 10 or a hundred times greater than these teams are. Chip Ganassi racing is not one of those. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of things that sort of factor into this, I guess, you know, just to, to sort of talk about it going down this weekend, I was surprised by it basically. Like I do think at this point, I was surprised just by this being the outcome. I feel like at this point, basically you, I, I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're talking about a huge difference between the performance of Ganassi and Aero McLaren at this point. Like Aero McLaren arguably has more resources at their disposal to continue getting better. You know, so so I guess from my perspective, yeah, the fact that it's it became like this just total shit show, that part of it, maybe given the fact that we've been through that once was not was like, yeah, it did feel like, oh, we're just okay, let's get back on the merry-go-round and like see when it stops, you know, and see where everybody's at. But in, in a weird way, the actual outcome of this whole thing after two years of it going down or a year and a half of it going down is a surprise. What, I mean, what's, what's your take on that? Like, are you, are you surprised that this is how this actually ended up? If we're just, if we're just talking about hello, ending up back at Ganassi, like, does that part of this surprise you? Well, like even some of my colleagues, when uh, Pelot won Lagoon Seiko last year by like 30 seconds, were asking like why is he leaving this team and like <laughs> yeah. he's gone on to like ram that down people's throats even more this year with how successful he's been with with Ganassi but I guess you have to you kind of have to do have to follow this in a linear fashion to try and unpack it because I guess when Polo made his decision that he was going to leave for McLaren there was the opportunity of Formula One testing and maybe even potentially a Formula One seat there was the obvious expansion that was going on at McLaren with a lot of excitement around it, a lot of obvious upsides to the team, some of the drivers that they were looking at signing or, or even had signed at that point. And, and the decision didn't seem wildly outrageous based on the fact that he was clearly getting a big salary bump and was going to be playing around in some Formula One cars. Like that sounds like a good double combo for a racing driver to take if we're just being honest about things. Yeah, totally. But I guess as we've gone through this season, it's become more and more apparent that Ganassi is still quite a significant amount ahead of Aaron McLaren. And I guess you can look at this in many different ways. You could argue that McLaren probably should have won three or four races this year, potentially, but they haven't is the top and bottom of things. However, you kind of want to break this down. Um, if we're just talking about what's, what has, has and hasn't happened, we can go back and change as many results as we want but they haven't won a race. Ray Hall's won a race this season and, and Aaron McLaren hasn't, which seems like a bizarre thing that you wouldn't have said at the start of the year based on their performance. Other things have become clear that there's no seat in F1. So whatever happens, if Alfa Tauri or Williams do want to make a move for Polo in this off season, it's going to come late and it's going to mean that they're going to have to buy out his contract for an IndyCar team because Polo is not going to wait until January or February to have an IndyCar ride for next season. He will have signed and, and will have an IndyCar ride. So whether he's at Ganassi or McLaren, He's going to need to get bought out by an F1 team for him to go to F1. Yeah, and and exactly, and neither of neither of those F1 teams is named McLaren. So precisely, like it's neither here nor there which which team he's signed up with. So your destination does not matter. So when you add all that up and you work out how dominant he's been this season, I guess the other thing I didn't mention as well was that last season I guess was kind of up and down. Definitely not as dominant as this season, obviously, because he didn't win the championship and. His, his Laguna Seca win actually bumped him a couple of positions in the standings. Um, had he not had that win, 
you know, he could have been sixth or seventh in the championship uh, at the end of the year, which I guess is another reason to think that maybe the grass was greener with McLaren and that it was worth the the move over. So I think I'm like, I think we've kind of agreed on the thing that would like, we're not surprised that this would be the logical or like the chosen direction that Plo would want to go. And if he was just sat there and someone said to him, who do you want to drive for an IndyCar next year? I think you would say Ganassi every day of the week. Um, as much as you might, people might want to talk about buying into the long-term project at McLaren, et cetera, et cetera. I actually believe that McLaren in like three or four years is going to be like right up there, if not the best team in, in IndyCar. But I, I I personally think the drawback is that they're in a shop that was designed for two to run two cars, the old Schmidt-Peterson shop. They're now currently running three full-time cars and a fourth-time car for Indy out there. And they're not going to be in their new factory until 2025. So it stopped them from expanding for next season. They can't have four cars next season full-time because they just don't have the room or the resources to be able to fit all of the people in there and, and to do all of that stuff. So I, I think it, it even in, in that sense of McLaren, I think there'll be massive players on the 2024-25 silly season market because I think they'll when they've got the new factory, they'll expand, they'll have room for the people, they'll be running out of their, should be running out of the Andretti shop, which runs four cars and has run five cars, as well as extra cars at Indy as well. And they've shown that they have the resources, they're, current, they're currently paying three drivers. And, you know, you know Zach has talked about being very confident in the kind of, the, the business side of things at McLaren and being able to make that work and how strong IndyCar has become for them in terms of the, the business side. So, I think 2024, 25, they're going to be massive players in the in the silly season market. I can see them going after absolutely any driver they want to, basically at that point, and and trying to make a big a big statement. But as we stand at the moment, if you're Alex Plo, you're probably looking at it and thinking the only way McLaren moves forward next year is just through continuity, which is not necessarily something you'd want to bet on when you're already at a team that is you know has had the the kind of linear progression that Ganassi has. So I guess the only other the, there's two other things that kind of interest me in this. The first was that I I was kind of perplexed a little bit by Ganassi's decision to make a statement uh, when they did, uh, especially as he starts a statement by saying, I don't usually talk about these kind of things. So it's like my, my immediate kind of thought of that was like, why start now then? Um, because the the kind of problem for me in that is, and I've written a piece about this, you can read it on the race if, you, if you're interested, um, came out on Sunday morning, um, that Alex Plo has been you know, if there is a written contract, which it seems like everyone's talking about, there is one. Um, and even regardless of any said contract, even in his tweets last year that said he wanted to move to McLaren, Alex Plo has been complicit in this all along, like the whole thing. And for Ganassi to come out and criticise McLaren for their conduct and not not really mention Pelot in that, to me, it's just a bit like disingenuous it is how I take that personally and I understand I got a million tweets of people saying well obviously he's not going to criticize his own driver um and and a few other people are kind of saying like oh he's the driver he's got all the power he's the one who's winning the championship he's the one who's you know in that position and I, I totally do not argue with any of that that is all totally correct um but the, the fact of the matter is that that statement didn't need to be made and the fact that it was and criticized McLaren and not Polo I just felt that was a bit uh, kind of disingenuous and that Alex has got you know, Alex has been criticised by his management and by McLaren, but I'm not sure the fans have kind of, I think some of the fans reading the Ganassi statement are kind of like jumping on McLaren um, when when I feel like Alex Blow has got as much to do with this as, as anyone personally. Um, I don't think that's an outrageous statement to make. Um, and as I've written in my column, I'm, I'm a big fan of Alex. I like spending time with him and think he's a, 
a really cool guy. I've had him on the pod loads of times and he's always really nice on here and always like, he's always like off air. He's always asking like how we're doing and what we're up to. And, um, you know, like in the paddock and, and, and his team, like his team absolutely adore him. Like they love him, all of the crew guys and everything that he worked, even after all of this, they still love it. Every, everything about him. They just love. Um, so it's not like a personal attack on Alex Blow. I just think I'm, I'm just surprised that he's not got the, the same level of kind of, um, maybe not criticism, but just like acknowledgement that he's got a role into role to play in all of this. Like he is the driver. Um, he does have a role in it. And the other interesting element is what do McLaren do now? Like we're late in silly season here. Like we're almost close to a few of the top guys being off the market. You know, I think a few people are getting, well, we're, we're getting closer and closer to thinking that Marcus was, was off to Andretti, even though Ganassi had supposedly made him a, a final offer. You were right about Polo getting another offer, by the way, according to our sources, at least in, in the last couple of months, he'd had a new offer from Chip. And that was one of the things that kind of kickstarted all of this, I guess. Um, but if I'm Zach, I'm like, I'm trying to sign Marcus as quickly as possible um, and, and get him in the car, you know. Um, I think there's a lot of options that McLaren can do to try and drag this out now, but none of them end well for McLaren because they're, they're going to end up, you know, if they try and desperately try and take Polo best case they sign him and they've got a driver that didn't want to move there and you know worst case they're a few months down the line with no resolution to the whole thing and there's no drivers left on the market at an elite level because they've all been taken by other teams so I think that's a really interesting element of the next kind of equation I think it's very very likely that McLaren will sign Felix Rosenquist again or go with Marcus if they can sign him um you know talked about how much they like Felix and he might be um, relatively inconsistent, but is we, we've seen what his upside can be. And I think, as I mentioned, if they do go big in the 24-25 market and signing Felix for another year gives them that opportunity to be a bit more flexible and make some big decisions in the in the off-season next year. So those, those are the kind of things that I think sound sensible for how this is kind of going to play out. Um, whether McLaren do go for Marcus, you know, we don't know that yet. Um, we don't even know if McLaren have started to look at other drivers yet or if they've spoken to other drivers. Um, my suggestion would be that they they probably have and have probably started this moving and uh, got the ball rolling because they won't want to be left in the lurch in terms of you know looking for a, another top driver. So I guess hopefully we've tried to answer some of your likely biggest questions about how all of this kind of plays out and what has happened, what hasn't happened, what can we talk about, what can't we talk about and what might happen next. So yeah, I guess that's the, the, the latest um, pull update or the polo down on the race IndyCar podcast. I'm glad we brought it back. Gives us something extra to talk about off track because it was, it felt like up until that point, at least a fairly quiet weekend in trying to, in terms of, again, like it has been the last couple of weekends trying to work out who's going where and who's doing what in, in the silly season. We're starting to get a bit more of a, a clear framework. And I think Linus Lundqvist, our guest last week, you can go back and listen to the interview we had with him, did himself no favors with his 12th place finish, um, he'd qualified um, really well again and did a a pretty fantastic job. We were we were really happy to obviously see some of those things, those things that he was talking about, looking forward to getting under his belt, um, whether it just be like a race pit stop, <laughs> which, he, which he'd only done for the first time <laughs> last Sunday, not in practice, um, which was a, a big deal for him. Lots of the other things you can go uh, and read about. He was 12th, wasn't he? Yeah, he was 12th in the race. That's right. Um, and, and qualified well as well. So I'm sure he's played himself into the into the market. We also had the news. We can't finish the pod without um, the, the the kind of the worst like timed announcement ever based on everything that happened with Alex Flo. But we now know that Tom Blomqvist is definitely 
uh, going to be racing for Maya Shank full-time next year, something that we've been talking about on the pod and on the pages of the race since May. That is now confirmed and it will be a full-time ride. He's not doing just the road and street courses or anything like that. So he's going to try ovals for the first time. And Helio Cachaneves is moving to a, a kind of leadership role within Maya Shank and he'll have a go at winning the fifth, his fifth Indy 500 with a, an Indy 500 only entry for Maya Shank, three cars there next year. So that'll be interesting how they manage that. They've struggled with two cars, I've got to say, um, expanding to two cars for, for full time. So how they manage three cars will be interesting. And Mike Shank is a racer. He knows that what they've done with two cars has not been not not been where he wants to be, or has not really been good enough for, um, you know the 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 team and where they want to be. So um, he's he's definitely. You know, I'm not saying anything that he doesn't know there. Um, and it was one of the things they were thinking about when they were deciding whether they would go with three cars. So um, they've got a lot of work to do to get all the right people in place and um, get all of that kind of program kicked off so yeah that'll be interesting so uh, i guess with a busy weekend you can head over to the hyphenrace.com to read all of the latest news features you can read uh, a race report on dixon's win and you can read what feels like 90 alex polo features on the pages of the race from over the course of the weekend and we're also recording this um during or as just as the nascar race finishes so i'm pretty sure if you head over to the race after the nascar race is finished there'll be a little report there talking about how the likes of Kamui Kobayashi and Jensen Button have got on in their debut and return, respectively. So that's all for this episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. Mm-hmm.